Welcome to part two of the ABCs of mental health, having the mind of Christ. Let's review. In part one of the ABCs of mental health, we learned that, well, life is difficult and when tough times happen, we get upset. And that's, that, that's, that, that's understandable. In fact, it's hard not to get upset when certain things happen to us. We also learned that in most cases, it's not the difficult situations we encounter in our lives that upset us, but what we believe about these difficult situations, which really influence how we feel. To unpack this, we refer to difficult situations in our lives as activating events. That is, events in our lives that cause painful feelings. And the resulting painful or bad feelings are consequential emotions. We learned that to feel better, we may try to change the activating events we encounter, or we will try to change the consequential emotions or how we feel about these events. As we further learn, we can do this in a helpful or proactive way, such as seeing a counselor, or in harmful and reactive ways, such as dumping, stuffing, or numbing our feelings. Our experience then would seem to tell us that when difficult times come, we only have two options. Number one, to either change what happened to us, which is limited in some cases, or to change how we feel, which again can be only partially effective. What we frequently fail to realize, though, is that there is a third option, and that is to change how we believe. In fact, what we believe and how we think about difficult times we encounter, this is the defining determinant of how we will feel. Now, during this part, we will look more closely at our emotions and beliefs and how they operate together. In so doing, we can discover not only how God made us, but also what He wants for us. Now, whenever I discuss emotions and beliefs, I'm always reminded of the two British sailors that were on shore leave in London. And as most British sailors would do on shore leave in London, they hit a pub. And they were in the pub until the wee hours in the morning. When they emerged from the pub, somewhat inebriated, they didn't know where they were because the London fog had set in. So looking around, they suddenly saw a man somewhat erect walking down the street. As he got closer, they suddenly realized he was a British admiral. They could tell by the medals on his chest and the way he was walking. So one of the sailors went up to him and said, Say, do you know where we are? Well, the British admiral, somewhat put out by their inebriated state and their question to him, answered somewhat gruffly, Do you know who I am? Well, the British sailor who asked the question turned to his comrade and said, Now we're really in trouble. He doesn't know who he is, and we don't know where we are, which is kind of the situation we find ourselves in, and which sums up the human condition. We don't know where we are, and we're not sure who we are or where we're going. Identity, that is knowing who we are, and our purpose, that is knowing 
where we're going are foundational in understanding our emotions and the beliefs that shape them. So before we dive into our beliefs and how they shape our emotions, let's look more closely at our emotions and what they are. For most people, emotions are kind of a mixed bag. We're not sure if or how much we should express them. One school of thought says that complete and uncensored expression of our emotions is the way to go. No holds barred. Let it all hang out. We release and empty all our bad feelings. This applies not only to the bad or painful feelings, but any feelings that we may have. The mantra, in fact, the creed of the last 60 years has been, if it feels good, do it. Emotions are meant to be expressed completely and fully and uncensored. The other school of thought says emotions are best left unexpressed and should be viewed with considerable distrust and skepticism. Therefore, expression of any strong emotion, either good or bad, is unwise and can only lead to a lack of control and probably do more harm than good. It is preferable to take a more stoic attitude to our emotions rather than expressing them. Take a stiff upper lip approach. This seems to be the view of many Christians and religious people in general. Now, as we discussed in part one, the first approach can easily lead to dumping our feelings, although providing momentary relief from painful feelings such as anger, guilt, grief, or other feelings, the relief is only short-lived. In fact, such people, it has been said, may not have ulcers, but they certainly will give them to others. In addition, recent psychological research has shown that complete and unfettered expression of anger, totally uncensored, can actually intensify anger rather than relieve it. The other approach, as you've no doubt concluded, is just another way of stuffing our feelings, which we also discussed in, in part one. Such an approach can only lead to a lack of closeness with others because we never acknowledge what we feel. This can lead to a lack of closeness and a constant pressure to present our best side. A person taking this approach may not give ulcers to others, but in all probability, they may develop them. So it seems that the question is this, are our feelings acceptable or unacceptable? And the answer is yes. On the one hand, we need our feelings. They are what makes us human and in the image of God. A quick review of scripture in both the Old and New Testaments tell us that both God and Jesus express emotion. God is described as a jealous and angry God, but also one who is slow to anger, compassionate, delights in us, and abounds with steadfast love as well as being forgiving. Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels, expressed a wide range of emotions, from anger to sadness to compassion, amazement, joy, frustration, and even pleasure. At one point, he was accused by the Pharisees of being a drunkard and a glutton. And in fact, his first miracle was at a wedding feast where he made more wine. Suffice it to say, Jesus obviously enjoyed a good time. On the other hand, we are told not to envy or lust 
after other persons or property and to avoid unnecessary anger and conflicts with others. We are to restrain certain feelings. And in addition, anxiety and fear are to be avoided and dealt with so that the fruits of the spirit, such as peace and self-control, might flourish. So what is the purpose of our feelings? Since they can be both acceptable and unacceptable. Well, Longman and Allender, two counselors, in their book, The Cry of the Soul, provide an answer. They write, We can view our emotions from the perspective of whether they lead us to an either engagement with God or move us away from greater dependence on Him. We can listen to what they tell us about our struggles. Our emotions then serve as signals to our spiritual condition. Our emotions in many ways are like a taproot, which can, when followed deep enough, lead us to a true reading of our spiritual state. And in the case of our painful feelings, I like to see them as the red warning light on the dashboard of our life, and which signals us to, again, look under the hood at our beliefs. The purpose of our emotions, then, is to assist in leading us into a close and dependent relationship with God. At the same time, our emotions can also serve to pull us away from a close and dependent relationship with Him. Ultimately, our emotions were created to guide us in our spiritual growth and not to detract from our spiritual growth. When they do detract, this is a sign that we should evaluate our beliefs and who we are. Now, when we consider our origin in the Garden of Eden, it is easy to see how we became dis disconnected with God. Now, you remember when the serpent was conversing with Eve, the serpent brought into question what God had told her about not eating from the tree of good and evil. And in fact, the serpent pointed out that God's motives for these instructions were because he would be jealous of Adam and Eve, and they knew as much as him. Distrust between Adam and Eve and God was born. And with distrust comes fear. Fear that our needs won't be met. Fear that if we don't run our lives, nobody will. Fear that no one will ever love us completely. And fear that ultimately we will be alone because we will die and no longer exist. When we distrust God and distrust others, we are fearful that our most basic needs will not be met and we have to meet them. So fear and anxiety, which were given birth in the Garden of Eden, are the most destructive and yet most pervasive emotions known to the human race. They are, if you will, the mother of all sins. Because of these two emotions, wars have started, murders committed, property stolen, lives slandered and lies told. In the book of James in the New Testament, we learn that conflicts and quarrels with others don't happen because of other people, but start from the desires which battle within us. We are always in some measure trying to seek security in both our relationships and from the material world around us. Fear and anxiety, whether we're aware of it or not, is the fuel that feeds these conflicts and feeds our insecurity. Satan, as he did in the beginning, 
continues to fuel our fears by shaping our identities into a distortion of God of what God meant us to be and have. In fact, Satan has been referred to as the father of lies in Scripture, and for good reason. The influence of these lies like fear and anxiety are as equally pervasive and easily caught from friends or family. They are the raw stuff that shapes the beliefs we have and which only perpetuate further painful emotions. Satan tries to distort our identity and our purpose. How does he do that? Well, Timothy Warren, in resolving spiritual conflicts and cross-cultural ministry, shares four broad lies or distortions that we've been infected with and which shape who we are. Once we recognize these lies and distortions, we can counter them with the truth about who God says we are. Let's consider each one of these broad lies. Number one, we are a sinner because we sin. We are a sinner because we sin is one of the deadliest of all the lies we believe. What does God say? No, we are not a sinner because we sin. We are righteous in Him, but we sin. For many people, this lie is like the shame trap. And many lies are like traps. This lie creates shame and we feel trapped in it. It states absolutely that we're hopeless and will never change. The stronger this belief, the greater the despair. Jesus' response is that because of him, we are a new creation, and the old has passed away. We don't have to be ashamed. The second broad lie, our identity comes from what we have done. This is a lie that permeates every segment of our culture, and if left unchecked, is insidious. No, God says our identity comes from what God has done for us. This belief our identity comes from what we have done, if held strongly, can feel like a trap, but it's the performance trap. We need to perform all the time because our identity comes from what we have done and achieved. This creates sometimes a workaholic, driven, and perfectionistic attitude. God's response is simple but profound. Everything we have is from Him, therefore it belongs to Him. We only have what we have because of His grace. Therefore, and this is key, there is absolutely nothing I can do to earn His love. I only have to accept it. Third liar distortion is our identity comes from what people say about us. And this is an inescapable lie because in part there is some truth to it. God says, no, our identity comes from what God says about us, not from what other people say about us. But certainly reputation is important, as is social approval in general. But frequently, this can become an approval trap. We are trapped by our need for approval, so that being approved of and accepted is the sole determinant of our identity leading us to be overly sensitive to criticism, defensive, and ironically, even having a tendency to withdraw from others out of a fear of rejection. Jesus' response to this is that we are his beloved, and we can do nothing that will separate us from him, and that he calls us friend. Our approval ultimately comes from him, 
and that approval is eternal. The fourth lie or distortion is our behavior tells us what we believe about ourselves. It's a much more subtle lie, but upon closer inspection, is a direct contradiction of what we've been discussing. No, God tells us what to believe about ourselves. Our beliefs about ourselves and not how we behave shapes our identity. And ultimately, our emotional response to situations. In fact, Jesus taught following rules wasn't the key to change, but what flows from our hearts is what counts. He wants to, trans remember, transform us so that we don't have to perform. So this is key. What we need to understand is that the person who talks to us the most during the day is who? Ourselves. And what we tell ourselves many times is rooted in the four broad lies we have about who we are. Ironically, in and of themselves, each of these lies have some degree of truth about them. We can't escape that. For example, it is true that having a good reputation and doing a good job well are values that everyone holds. When these beliefs, however, become, and here it is, become creeds which we hold about ourselves and serve as the only defining characteristic about who we are and are the sole criteria then our sole purpose for living, then God is no longer in control of our lives, but we are. We can become slaves to these lies and these distortions. And when we are in control and he is not, then these beliefs become hardwired into a running conversation we have with ourselves. For example, when our identity is solely shaped by what people say about us, then it's not long before we're telling ourselves that we must be approved of by certain others in order to feel good about ourselves, and if not, then it's terrible and even emotionally upsetting. It's easy then to see how such a belief, if held strongly and becomes a creed for our lives, can cause us to be increasingly defensive, touchy, and even withdraw from others or to put ourselves in front of others all the time, seeking to have the spotlight and to be approved by others. But we might say, we don't talk to ourselves this way, though we don't have any of these beliefs. We need to remember, though, that when we're struggling with upsetting emotions, the beliefs that we have about what's happening to us and their meaning will shape how we feel. By listening to our emotions, and what we're saying to ourselves, we have a window into our spiritual condition. It is then that the biblical injunction to no longer conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, again, there's that word, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, becomes real to us. We let the Holy Spirit, or what God says, speak truth about who we are and cancel the lies that have been spoken into us. By so doing this, the upsetting emotions that we are having are slowly absorbed by the peace that passes understanding, which Jesus said he would give us. This is the process of having the mind of Christ. So now we've learned the ABCs of mental health. Although it's difficult to change our circumstances as well as how we feel, we can, however, begin to affect our beliefs so that we are transformed from the inside out. 
Let me just suggest a few ways we can begin to do this. Number one, release our anxiety to God. Follow the directive that Paul gives in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There are several notes to point in this passage that may be helpful. First of all, anything that makes us anxious should be shared with God. I mean anything. And then we should tell him what's making us anxious and ask him to make it better. Secondly, always thank God for what he has done. Remember what he has done for you and thank him for that. And third, trust and believe that by sharing with him, he hears us and will grant us peace, because he says he will, a peace that passes understanding. A good passage is Isaiah 30, 15, and in this passage it says, quietness and trust is our strength. Quietness and trust is our strength. Number two, learn to pray our fears, our tears, our anger, our jealousy, our loneliness, and any other painful emotion that we're experiencing. How do we do this? One way is to pray the Psalms. There is no other section of the Bible that captures the full range of emotion like the Psalms. In fact, the Psalms were the prayer book of the Jews and Jesus. How do we pray them? By slowly and deliberatively reading them and then putting them into our prayer to God. Let me give you an example. The first two verses of Psalm 23 are, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. How might I put this in a prayer that comes from me to God? You might say, Thank you, Father, for caring for me like a shepherd. You have provided me with everything. I need quiet, peace, and rest in my soul. Thank you for showing me this peace and rest. This is just an example of how you might pray the Psalms. When we do this, transformation begins to take place. Third, develop the discipline of gratitude and thankfulness. We can do this by beginning a gratitude journal and daily listing three people, events, or things for which we are thankful. Try listing different ones each day, and you can do this in the morning or evening, what works for you. Scripture said God inhabits our praises. Fourth, Remember who we are. In the first chapter of John, we're told that when we believe in and accept Jesus, we become children of God. And what does that mean? It means three important things. Number one, we are accepted by God. Number two, we are secure in God. And number three, we are significant to God. There are numerous scriptures which support each of these three areas that support our adoption as God's child. And we need to immerse ourselves in these scriptures and think on these things. And finally, we need to be willing to share with trusted brothers and sisters in Christ because they care, and if necessary, to seek out a Christian counselor. Proverbs states that there is victory with many counselors, so we can't be hesitant to seek his help from those around us. Remember, he made us and longs to heal us, so let him, so that you might have the mind of Christ.